welcome to Flourishing Education, the podcast that provides you with conversations with experts and like-minded people who would like to see education turn into a flourishing environment for the well-being of all. So, are you ready? Let's start. Hope you enjoy this session. and welcome to another helpful imperfectly perfect conversation today i'm talking to brandy heather so brandy is award-winning disability and inclusion educator consultant play coach inspirational speaker and canadian best-selling author of return to play rebuilding resilience risk and reconnection and founder of amped to play a very warm welcome to the podcast I am so excited to be here. Thank you for having me. No, thank you. Thanks for accepting to come to the podcast. Of course, of course. So, so Brandy, what a um, biography. And like, you know, your bio is awesome. Um, you know, inclusion, disability and, and play all together. Wow. So can you tell us a bit more about you before we start talking about all of those? Points? Sure. Um, well, it's so funny when people ask me to introduce myself, uh, I often have to look myself up um, because it's hard to uh, it's hard to describe where I built my practice and my love for all of those things, inclusion and diversity and play and um, and those pieces. But but I'll I'll try and sum it up in this um, my the last 25 years of my career. I spent in post-secondary education. So I was teaching teachers and nurses and kinesiologists and coaches and sport managers how to be more inclusive in their practice. Um, and, and so my background is education. I, I, am, a, I am a teacher at heart I am a, and I am a teacher at play. Um, and so in my, in my career, um, my focus really was, and in my, in my teaching, my focus was um, often on how do we bring people to an inclusive place um, where we also recognize our own strengths and abilities and then the strengths and abilities in others. So I really believe genuinely that if we start to see the real gifts that we have, that it makes it easier for us to find the gifts and talents in others. So my practice is really around how do we find the gifts in ourselves? Um, and I believe that we find those gifts often when we're in a space where we are what I call in play. And so, um, yeah, so I taught for 25 years in post-secondary education and I really taught that premise. So whether I was teaching sociology or history or ethics and values, um, or pedagogy in adapting physical education for um, children. I was always coming from this place that if we find our gifts, that we can find those in others. And four years ago, um, I decided to, uh, actually three years ago, I left post-secondary and I decided to start my own company with, um, uh, with a partner. And, and now we provide education, consulting and coaching 
and diversity and inclusion training around the world um, from this place of, of play, of really bringing people back to a place that where, where we'll find our greatest strengths and our connections and belonging will be when, when people feel that they can be in play. Mm, I love that. So I've noted a couple of things that I'd like us to start exploring. If, if Absolutely. <laughs> the first thing, we've had conversations together on LinkedIn about language. So you know how, how I love language and, and I love to talk about it. And I sense yes. the same with you. So. I do. I do. Mm. So finding gifts in ourselves, for me, requires awareness, self-awareness right which in a world where we are on autopilot a lot of the time so much of the time yeah so so i think i think one of the things that happens is that we often see diversity and inclusion as a thing outside of ourselves um that it that but we don't actually turn that inwards and say, oh my goodness, what are my diverse strengths? Um, what are the things that make me unique and beautiful and different? And, and so turning that lens on ourselves, and, and I can tell you from the, the business CEO to the teacher, to the parent, to the 12 year old, um, high, you know, the 12 year old elementary school student to a high school student, that turning that lens on ourselves and saying, what are our diverse capabilities is really hard. It's, um, and, and in, I don't think that's getting easier as, as we reflect this lens of, of social media and what, what we're, you know, could look like and should look like. And, and I think every time we, we ask someone to look at the gifts in themselves it's like, it's like that awful question in an interview, right? Like, what are your strengths? And it's one of the most practiced lines. Like, we have to go find them. And uh, when we're scared and when something is brand new to us, there's so many situations where it's really hard to turn that lens on ourselves. But I see that as the first step. And yeah, it's, it's not an easy step. And, and mm -hmm. I work on it every day. Yes, and it's also, I think, as you've rightly pointed out, it's easier when you're in fear, it's so easy to just go into uh, it, it, sort of um, really going, well, no, I'm not going there because it, it's, it's, uh, it's too scary, right? You're in survival mode, so you just got to look after yourself and not, not mm -hmm. really you wouldn't really want to look at any anybody else's um, issues. No, um, fear does fear does not leave a place um, for inclusion uh, mm -hmm. and and diversity. Um, fear likes sameness, and fear likes to find things that reflect exactly what we see and hear and believe. And so. Um, yeah, when we when we are scared, it's really hard to have that lens. Yes, and so in the, you know again, like currently, a lot of the I mean I don't know what it's like. You know, it, it, in, you're in Canada, aren't you? I am. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So 
I don't know what it's like in Canada, but in the UK, there are a lot of rhetoric or a lot of language that is being used that actually fosters and develops that fear. Um, and that also something that really always bothers me, I guess, because my background is in intercultural competence and into, you know, as a linguist, that's sort of like yeah. understanding the other the other person's perspective. Um, and and there's the rhetoric of them and us, you know, this sort of like divide, which to me is almost like it's easy then divide and conquer, right? It's just if Absolutely. you if you put the them and us. So it seems to come with the fear-based. Is that your experience? And again, you know, how do we encourage people to uh, step away from the, you know, it's it's about I, the individual, and them, you know, to, to maybe moving more towards a we approach. I, and I really do believe this, that if you picture in your head a bridge, like a, a bridge with two sides. And I think oftentimes we've forgotten our bridge building skills. I think we've forgotten sometimes that um, a bridge needs a foundation on both sides and that there's somewhere in the middle where there still needs to be some solid footing and some place for us to go. And so often I think um, diversity and inclusion as a, as a whole is seen as, um, one side of the bridge that us or them. And I, I tell people all the time, um, if we think of it as a bridge that we build on both sides, that uh, where I'm coming from, um, what my lived experience is, who I am, where I've been, who I've known um, and what I've learned is on one side and, and those experiences are the same on the other side. Um, but if I stand on my side of the bridge and I say to you, you need to come over here. Like you need to, you need to be on my side of the bridge. And instead of, you know, building the steps along the way and, and making it so that you're not, you're not worried about coming on the bridge with me, um, that we make these really foundational steps on both sides that sometimes I think we call on one side to say, come to this side. This is this is my lived experience, what I know and experience, but I don't take into consideration that you also have your side of the bridge, what you have lived and known and experienced. And, and so I really see inclusion and diversity, you know, education as our bridge building skills. We need to, we need to respect our own foundations, where we've come from, where we've been, what we experience. And then also build a bridge to what other people experience, where they come from and where they've been and um, what they experience. And somewhere in there, we'll, we'll build great bridges, but um, we have to know that it, it, is, it has two sides. Yes, and, and what I love about your bridge analogy, like your metaphor, is that it's really solid, right? It's a, once you've got the foundation, this bridge is there, it's, it enables that back and forth and you know communication circulation you know amazing mm -hmm. on one well, side and then I do, if i can if i can build my foundation solid and i know what that is on my side i'm not worried you're going to come over and break down the bridge i'm not worried that you're going to you know come in and you know undermine the foundation of of what i've built and i'm not worried about 
coming over there to undermine your foundation. I'm, we're actually building something together. Yes. Well, I think it's that building together, isn't it? Because part of the problem, again, with a lot of our societies that, you know, my way is better than your way. And the way I do it, it's like that my way or the highway type mm -hmm. of approach. Um, and again, how do we shift that rhetoric or that, you know, because it, I think to me, it's almost very ingrained in our, in our societal constructs and paradigms um, I see it being a French, a French, you know, person in in the UK. So, and you know, and and the cultural differences are not that great. I mean, you know, I fit I fit in in terms of you know, yes, I'm white, and but you know, I yeah. live in a small village, and people still refer to me as oh, you're looking when people are sort of looking for our cottage because it's still a little bit difficult to find. They just go, yeah. oh, you're looking for the French lady. That's what they say. <laughs> But, but isn't it so funny that so many people who are going to be listening to this podcast are going to be thinking, um, like, I, I would stop and say to your listeners, what is your idea right now when we talk about diversity and inclusion? What is the first thing that comes into your mind? And I, and I won't cloud the story um, because that story is personal and individual. You're talking about, you know, being the the you know the French lady in a, in a house um, where people are differentiating like oh that's the house where so and so lives, but so many stories come from all these different ideas that we have about diversity. So one of the first things that I love to put into play is that um, diversity is greater than any single difference, right? It, it um, you know, we are seeing this, you know, massive um, understanding for more diverse diversity and the need for more diversity in our, in our culture and in our communication and in the way we see people. But it is a massive thing. Diversity is the way we think and feel and experience and live our culture, our language, our, the way that we imagine the stories that we tell. Like diversity is rich. It is rich. And sometimes we get funneled into like diversity is a single thing. My expertise is in disability inclusion. So um, I, can, I can easily get really funneled into that. That is the diversity concept, but diversity is amazingly rich and huge. And that's actually where, where play comes in for me um, because uh, it, Play is a single, you know, singularly unifying concept. Everyone in the world, no matter where you live, um, no matter what language you speak, uh, no matter, you know, what your ability, we all play. Mm -hmm. And so um, I think we need to open, I think we need to reopen the concepts around diversity um, and and see them as macro concepts and not, you know, micro singular pieces. I That's huge that. for me. I love, I love, love that. Thank you. Thank you for taking me back to that you know, macro level. Love mm -hmm. it. 
particularly because as you said that what made me what the word that came up for me is if we look at nature it's such a beautiful example of diversity right beautiful. so much yep. diversity in in the ecosystem and in the you know on this beautiful blue planet mm -hmm. and actually the beauty of of our blue planet is it's not it doesn't say this plant is better yeah like weeds it just goes well you want to grow grow yeah, exactly um, exactly so yeah. i love that thank you is that yeah. how you view it is that how you view diversity you would see diversity or would you use a different metaphor no i, I see diversity very nature and diversity a beautiful connection um, I really, I really do see diversity as, um, like literally, yeah, the, the choices that, that nature makes in our, the blades of grass to a snowflake to, um, to the creative connections that people make, um, to art and the way we, we build and construct and, and so I, I, I see diversity as, as bigger. And I, it, it is one of the barriers to what I do um, is that people, when you say, oh, I'm, I'm in, you know, the area of diversity and inclusion, or I'm in the area of disability inclusion, um, that people narrow right down to the pinhead of the, of the thing that they believe for them and their experience right and so I'm often having to take that pinhead and be like oh actually there's so much there's so much greater to that and you know we were talking about um seeing that in ourselves um and that 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 actually for me is the first step so if you if I say to someone like, what is your greatest strength? And they, they work at it and they're like, well, it's, um, I'm funny and let's celebrate that. You're funny. That's amazing. Now tell me more about that. Tell me, tell me more about what being funny is. And is it, you know, you communicate and you connect and you do all these things. And so we do it to ourselves as much as we do it to anything else in the world we try to define ourselves in really singular spaces. And yet the diversity of our talents and gifts is, is enormous if we'll allow ourselves to, to dig into it. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, working in the world of disability inclusion, one of the things that, you know, we, we really look at is that people, you know, what do you see in first in the first moments? What do you, you see in me in the first moments? Um, do you see, do you see my disability? Do you see my ability first? And how do we, how do we change that? How do, how can we reconstruct that? Um, so that um, when we see ourselves um, and when we see others that we actually seek first to see ability, we seek first to see um value and gifts and, and those things. Um, so it's a real change in paradigm for a lot of people. And yeah. when we're, when we're scared and we're vulnerable, 
we're we're not prone to looking at other people's gifts and abilities no and i was gonna say it's a it's real vulnerability because you just have to accept that your your mental construct so you know, what you're defining is like you're literally being you know goes back against that awareness but knowing what your values your beliefs your past experiences um that make you as an individual will determine how you filter you know the the the, the situation the person in front of you absolutely mm. yeah. yeah and and this is what I guess this is where the the unconscious bias comes from right <laughs> it does yeah and and we all we all have bias yes. um you know conscious and, and unconscious we all have bias we we prefer things um yeah. uh and uh and again I think uh you know we we don't have to we don't have to tuck away the things that we prefer. What I like us to be is more mindful of the things that we prefer and why we prefer those. Um, and I think that mindfulness about, um, I'll give an example. Thousands of people that I work with, students that I've worked with for, you know, thousands of students I've worked with would say to me, I have never met anyone with a disability. And I would say, wow, that is really incredible because 15 billion people on the planet live with a disability. So it would be unusual that you haven't met someone. But again, their lived experience would be, I've never seen someone that has a visible disability that I can see and therefore I don't have a category of like, I don't believe I have a lived experience with someone with a disability. And, and so when we open that up and we say, um, well, do you have, and I would say to them, do you have any instructors or college professors who have a disability? And they would say, no. And I would say, actually you do because I am a woman living with a disability and I've been teaching you for six months and you did not, it did not even occur to you that I'm a person living with a disability because your, your lens would be, I can, I could see that if you had a disability, I could see that. And therefore that's my, my, my lens, my lived experience. And so when we just open up that consciousness, that mindfulness, it's like, oh yeah, okay, okay. N now we can have a conversation with it and, and we can create the bridge. So here's the bridge building moment. The bridge building moment is, wow, I thought I had never met anyone with a disability. And I add a plank on the bridge where I'm like, hey, come on over here. I'll make this plank. It's easy to step on. When you step on it, I'm not going to say, oh my goodness, I can't believe you didn't realize that I have a disability or I can't believe you didn't do it in this way or say it in this way and you use the wrong words. And because the chances of you crossing the bridge for, to come into my story or, or even listen to my story, if I'm going to shame you on this side and say, oh my goodness, you're not saying it right or doing it right or the chances that you're going to come on the bridge and we're going to build this together are like none 
But if I say, wow, I'd really like to hear about that and create a story together um, and build a bridge together, then we have a place that we can do amazing things. Students would tell me all the time, I, they, they, had to take, they had to take my courses um, because it was part of their you know, prerequisite for their, for their learning. And they had to learn about disability inclusion. And by the time they were done, they were, you know, some of them are still practicing um, in rehabilitation and physiotherapy and occupational therapy and, and adapted physical activity and their sport coaches around the world. And, and, and because we built a bridge, we didn't build this, you know, mandatory set of requirements in which you will, you know, say things in the proper way and do things in the proper way. We make mm -hmm. that diverse space, right? We make yeah. space for it. Yeah. And I wonder how much you feel that this stems also from the need as human being to make sense of your environment. And so because you want to make sense of your environment and your brain is, is wired to do that, right? It just Oh, absolutely. It's making, it's anticipating things and making up things. And then if it doesn't quite work with what it's anticipating, there's a bit of a, oh, what's going on here, right? Mismatch. Absolutely. Absolutely. And what, what do we do in that mismatch, right? Mm. Our, our natural reactions to the mismatch. And that's actually comes nice full circle back to, you know, this idea of unstructured play. Um, the idea that um, as, as we continue to kind of create a regimen around childhood where, you know, sport and recreation and education is so standardized and, and regimented, that um, that unexpected, that when we come up against things that we've never seen before, never done before, et cetera, we actually become less resilient. Um, you know, when, when the child who hasn't played in mess and muck uh, before experiences mess and muck for the first time at like 10 and 12 years old, it is hugely uncomfortable. It, it will feel... <laughs> It will feel, you know, <laughs> overwhelming, right? It's like, oh my goodness. And, and I've seen it. I've seen it in my practice and I've seen it as, as a parent, right? The things that we don't, uh, we don't let our children, you know, have because we want to keep them safe. And again, we are drive as parents is to keep our children as safe as possible. But um, some, of the, some of the ways that we're doing that right now, it's actually not it's not growing our kids for a lifetime of things that are unexpected like pandemics and, yes you know massive change um which is which is part of our world so so yeah the the whole to me it's a circular thing it's um if we introduce difference and the unexpected and the unexplained and the uncommon and the unfamiliar uh, when we're kids, then when as adults, no matter what we do, we actually, we collect what I call drawers full of experiences so that not every time we come around the corner and something is new or unexpected, we have a fear response. Like we step back, we, you know, pull in, we, we avoid. Um, so yeah, that to me, it's all circular to me. I love, love that. So I want to 
I want to explore unregimented play mm. um, because um, the, it resonates so much with me because the, the second book I, I bought, uh, I, I wrote with my colleague Dominic Thompson, who's How to Grow a Grown Up. So um, I completely agree with you that we have created yes. a generation of young people because we care, because we love them, because we want them to be happy. Oh, for sure. We do. <laughs> it didn't come out of like, oh my goodness, we're just, you know, we, we didn't have children so that we could bubble wrap them and, and uh, you know, put them in a container and hope that by the time they're 20, you know, they're all just fine. Yeah. Um, we didn't do that. But. but we do that and it's completely, you know, often when I, when I talk about the book to people, I just say, you know, when your child is unwell and you're really worried because they're unwell, I know that you would do anything for them to get well again, but you also know that this um, illness, physical illness, is helping them develop their immunity, right? Um, so I often say, well, why would you even consider like locking their kid, your kids in a room for 18 years and go, don't worry, I'm protecting you, and then opening <laughs> the door? Because that's what we do. Like 18 years, off you go to uni as far away yeah. as possible from us. And then, and I'm going to keep you in this really protected environment. No germs, nothing. You're going to be safe. Open the door when they're 18 and go, I was done. Well, and actually, to be honest, my, my drive and research around play um, came out of years of watching that exact thing you're talking about happen at college and university. So students would come to us at 18 and, you know, 25 years ago when I started teaching, students would come to us, you know, they were getting their own apartments and doing their own things and getting to their exams and, and, and managing time and doing the, and I just saw this massive shift, right? All of a sudden, you know, in the last five years of my teaching, students were like, I can't come to class today. I've got ants in my apartment. Those were things I was hearing. I was like, what? They're like, I'm like, they're ants. And they would say, it's overwhelming. It's, it's just, it's so like the stress of having the ants in my apartment is so overwhelming that I can't come to class. And I would be like, I don't even know what is happening. <laughs> right? Um, but everything was overwhelming. I mean, I use the ants example, but, but so much was overwhelming for them. And, you know, as we that same kind of analogy, right? That for 18 years, we made sure that their laundry was done and they uh, you never had bought a grocery and they, uh, you know, they actually hadn't, you know, ha they hadn't fallen down and, you know, brushed themselves off and picked themselves back up and they haven't jumped from rocks to rocks and they, they you know, they stumble and uh, we pick them up. And so then at 18 and 20, we're like, wow, you are not good at this <laughs> life thing because life is so full of these twists and turns. And yet we've made this straight, really straight road with really smooth paved paths. Yeah. Um, so yeah, play, play for me, that, that is the major shift that we need to make in play is that um, kids need to get dirty and lost. I know people are just aghast. They're like, what children need to get lost like, yeah because they need to figure out how to find their way back um 
you know, it, it, uh, yeah, it, it's phenomenal what happens when you, um, when you create a space where kids can, when the instructions are, there's no instructions and what happens. But you know what, Randy, the problem isn't the problem with that, that we don't trust our young people that they can find their way back. Isn't that the issue? hundred percent, a hundred percent. And, and in not trusting them, we actually don't allow them to trust themselves. Yes. Right. And so, yeah, it's, again, it is a circle. Um, if we trust a little bit, um, if we trust a little bit, you can go to the corner and come back and, and prove to yourself and me that you're just fine. Then 10 more steps, then 10 more steps. And now you're at the playground and uh, by yourself, three blocks from the house. And, and as we're even having this conversation, there are going to be parents who are like that. I could never let that happen. And I think people, I think we need to give people the grace of these small steps and not these giant steps. I'm not saying, you know, <laughs> let, let your five-year-old walk to the corner all, all by themselves. What I'm saying is that we need to, we need to fade away that, um, that process. Like, I think sometimes we want to go to extremes because we're like, oh my goodness, we want to build great, resilient kids, right? Like, so, you know, therefore we'll do this big thing, but it's actually in the little, it's in the tiny trust that we give them every day. It's in, it's in every time that we said, go to the corner and be back in 15 minutes uh, that they come back and rewarding the, the strength it took to do something new and risky and resilient and, and play without instructions. And, and uh, you know, I often come back to, you know, my experience as a kid was, you know, on a Saturday morning, you left the house at nine o'clock and you did not come back until the streetlights were on. And I can tell you that my parents had no idea where I was or what I was doing, but that I navigated a whole bunch of things during that time that I still use in my life now, yeah. right? Yeah, well, my, I, I often use the example that my dad was exactly the same. And my dad used to, he taught me when I was about six or seven. Um, see, when your shadow becomes longer, that's when I want you home. So I knew that as, as my shadow was getting longer and longer. <laughs> what a beautiful nice example. To go home. You know? Yeah. Yeah. yeah I agree. Um, because we, so, so there's two things that are coming up for, for me. And, and I see at uni, I'm exactly like you. So I see on a daily basis, you know, students who arrive at uni and just say to me, um, I don't know how to navigate the city. And I'm like, well, walk, you know, go, go on the bus and they go, but I've never been on the bus. I'm like, my, my parents have always taken me to every single place I had to go. Exactly. Okay, well, time for you to learn to get on the bus. <laughs> <laughs> Today is the day. Yeah. Um, yeah. This, um, so, so as, do you feel that as adults, play is like a dirty word? 
So do you feel that as like plays, childish, you know, as a serious adult professional, you can't be playing and, you know, you have to take yourself seriously? Well, uh, if you really want to scare a business person, you walk in and you say, I'm a play specialist and I'm going to change how you do business. Because to be honest, there is nothing more scary to a serious business person than um, the unstructured chaos that they believe play is. Um, unproductive, um, you know, unrefined. And again, work is not play. Like, we have become very good separators of those two things. And yet research would tell us really clearly that people who play at their work. So let me give some clarity to that. People who are in play at work, that means I love what I do. I'm engaged by it. Um, uh, it makes me feel like I can't wait for the next moment. Um, I do work that makes it feel timeless. I do work that um, I would do if, even if you said tomorrow, I, I'm going to cut your pay in half, I would still do the work because I love the work. Um, so if you are in play at your, at your job, you are highly productive. You are also highly inclusive. Um, you are open to a diversity of ideas and new creative ideas. Um, you are... Uh, physically and mentally and cognitively keyed in, which you couldn't ask for in business. You couldn't ask for something better in your organization. And yet when I say play, people are like, no, <laughs> we can't do that. And as adults, we have shamed it as a construct, right? Um, so if you, if you think about if, anyone went to work tomorrow and their boss said to them, you know what, today, just, I want you to take a day and I want you to play. Like just, I want you to take the day off and play. My guess is 50 to 80% of adults would not have any idea what that construct looked like for them. You'd have to break it down. Yeah. You'd have to say, I want you to do something today that gives you so much joy that you lose track of time. And, and I know from my work, that 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 idea brings many adults to almost tears because they can't remember they can't remember the last time they did something that wasn't controlled by this yeah their phones by time um but if we can if we can help them to understand this how to capture those moments that are timeless for them, that do you feel like they are in play, then we can capture more of them and string them together. Um, and, and for me, uh, that's as vital to me as, it, as diversity and inclusion and all those other pieces. We, we will create the capacity to be more inclusive and create greater belonging when we can find play for ourselves and then find that uh, space for others mm. so you know what Brandy what you've just said made me think of this book that I've just finished reading which I'm sure you will know sorry I, 
Yes. Yeah. Yes. Exactly. So, yeah, flow for sport and business, for me, that's the same construct as play. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, yeah, so, like, the, the, the few times I've experienced flow. And, and in a way, this is why I love those podcasts, is because I often say, you know, when you, <laughs> when you hold the space, and you connect with people, there's like magic happens. Yep. Right? So do you also feel that when like in play, magic happens mm -hmm. for, for people? And I think um, I think the greatest part of my work is to watch someone who just found it, who was doing something came to a workshop, was doing an activity, read my book and realized, oh my goodness, they were, they were in play. Like they, they came for this thing. They came for a workshop or a seminar, or they were going to spend three days with, with an expert in, in disability inclusion. And what they left with was an understanding of, uh, of so much more and and it is that magic and i i don't use that word lightly but play creates creates a magic it creates a um you know i think we believe we only see that in kids but when you watch adults and older adults in when they are in their play um and i relate this in my book um i until i studied play i didn't I don't think I recognize how often I now observe it in other people. And uh, one of the contracts in my book is watching my mom uh, play. My mom is a gardener and that is her play. When she is doing it, when she is gardening, there is, there is nothing else. She is, uh, you know, she is knee deep in dirt. Her fingernails are blackened um, and, and it is her, it, that is her playground. And, you know, her mental and physical health actually are dependent on finding that time. And, and when you see it in the business context, when you watch people who have worked together, maybe for, you know, five, 10 years who don't, who have never seen, and I use that in air quotes, right? That, that they've really never seen the people that they work with until they played in one of my seminars. And then the next week they write back and say, oh my goodness, like it changed how we work together because now I, I get it. Um, like I understand so-and-so so much better um, and I understand myself better. And I realized that I can, I can play in this space that, um, that I, I, yeah, I didn't think I, number one, I would never feel like I had permission to do that. And uh, yeah, it, it's the gift of my work is finding that magic. Uh, it is magic. And when you see it, it, it can bring you to tears. Like it, you can literally stand back and be like, oh my goodness, I can't believe what we created here today. Yeah. That's the magic in my work. Yeah. I can imagine. I can imagine because what, 
what comes up for me with what you're saying is also with that comes a connection. There's a true connection with with the other where you meet, I call that a meeting of hearts, where this is not... (laughs) And for the listeners, I'm pointing at my forehead. Yes. Prefrontal cortex. Yeah. There's a real connection. So I'll give you an example. My, My two boys and I... Um, tend to do silly dancing in the in the kitchen that's something that I quite like doing um, <laughs> and very often my husband looks at us and is like what is going on here <laughs> yeah. just... but yep. that connection is just the giggling in the you know is just absolutely awesome and you can't you can't replace that you can't you know no you you can't it, it yeah. is irreplaceable. Yeah. And it's very different. What I'm, I'm, what I'm obviously hearing you say as well is it's very different. You were pointing to, the, to, to our phones. Mm-hmm. A lot of the time when we look at our phones or when we watch Netflix or, you know, things like that rather than play, it's about numbing the emotions as opposed to re- you know, connecting with others and being presence and all of those things well if you think too um you know I'm, I'm a big believer in the sensory connection too right so when we when we are watching something um it's you know it's visual um but when we are playing and and if we talk about the play in nature um the sensations of hot and cold and wet and slippery and um, pokey and, and uh, prickly and, and all of those sensations, um, we need to experience that. Our, our, our bodies need to experience that. It, it keeps our brain uh, mentally and, and physically and cognitively all going. Um, and our sensory systems are really lacking when we don't do those things. Um, so, you know, sensitivities to noise and, and those kinds of things, we're seeing, you know, an increase of those things because actually we have reduced the amount of sensory input that we have just, just in our play behavior. Um, we've, we've actually reduced the amount of sensory input that we take in, um, bright light and all of those things. And so our, our, our systems need input other than, yes, our phones and and computers and those kinds of things, which is, um, you know, what I see as an, an important aspect of childhood that, that we need to bring back. So I'll give you an example. We run a, what we call ramshackle play, which is um, literally a 27 foot van full of ramshackle pieces, which is pieces of plywood and uh, PVC tubing and uh, own rain barrels and, and big, huge pieces of things that are all 90% would go to our landfill. Um, but they, we use them in play. And so kids build from them and they create from them and they, they balance on them and do all sorts of things. And we just drop them in the middle of a space and we just let kids build. And one of the things that we often get is like, oh my goodness, what if kids get slivers like shouldn't we put gloves on all the kids and shouldn't we make sure that they don't fall down and 
And it's actually like, actually what we need kids to do is to navigate those things by themselves. So we need them to look and experience the piece of wood that doesn't have a perfectly sanded off edge you know, because because as adults, we're running around sanding off all the edges to make sure that no one gets a sliver. And yet what we need kids to do is actually experience, oh, actually, I'm going to have to be careful where I put my hands there um, or where I put my feet or because that actually is is part of their cognitive development. It's it's part of how their brains develop. And as we take away those opportunities, you know, we can say, okay, well, maybe they will experience that later in life, but um, we actually want them to navigate it young. We want them to navigate it little. Yes, and it drives me crazy. For example, my my uh, youngest is, is still in primary school, and when when um, his class is not listening or concentrating, the first thing the, the teacher says is, "I'm going to reduce your playtime." absolutely it's the first thing to go that's what they need to be able to concentrate more right a hundred percent a hundred percent so uh, brandy you've got to, i give you a magic wand okay you, you have this magic wand and you can change the way we do education, change the world. What do you see here, feel in this new world and this new world of education? In this, if I had that magic wand, um, I would, every child would, would paint and uh, draw and create art and be outside and build in every subject. Um, they like every educational experience would be a sensory experience. Um, and so that we were building this holistic, awesome kiddo that is, is also so incredibly sensory aware um I would every subject would include an art medium for me I'm an artist by hobby and by well by by who I am and so for me uh art and play go hand in hand and so every educational experience for me would be a moment of discovery and exploration um kids would feel it and hear it and sense it and see it and touch it and create it themselves mm. not not me yeah and presumably also importantly would not develop a a belief that they are good at this or are not good at this because like you what's really interesting is when you talked about like art being key the first thing that came to me is like but I'm rubbish at art that's like the first thing that just came up as like, yeah, I'd love to brandy, but I can't, I can't draw for coffees. <laughs> but see, that's my favorite. It's my favorite thing that people say. Oh my goodness. Like if you want the second scariest thing to do in business, don't walk in and talk about play, walk in and talk about drawing. 
today we're going to draw something and I'm going to give you crayons. <laughs> and, and you want to see a boardroom full of people shiver, right? And yet they, they do the most outstanding things in front of each other all the time, risky, resilient things. But put a piece of paper and some crayons in front of them and, and you know, people have to leave. They're like, oh my goodness, like, please don't ask me to do that. And so that's actually, that's actually one of those first steps for me is to help people realize, actually, you're so much better than you think you are because you have, you have this construct of artist in your head. You have a construct of what that looks like. No different than all the other constructs we have for men and women and ability and culture and race and language and right like every other construct one of the most simple ones is I want you to draw me a picture and the construct of artist oh my goodness yeah. we're like I'm not very good at that like, actually you're better than you think you are challenge that therefore challenge it change the the construct the mental construct because it's just a mental construct right exactly just the construct yeah oh my goodness how awesome is this um and the so, so we've talked about rebuilding resilience and the risk taking and reconnection do you want to tell us about that what what does that mean for you well, I, I see reconnection in, in two ways. I, I really do see reconnection to reconnecting to ourselves. I, I think, um, I really do believe that if we find the gifts in ourselves, it's easier to find them in others. But I think that play is a space where we can, we can create that reconnection. Um, like even in conflict management, um, you know, I've worked with organizations that, that are struggling with their internal workings, how people work together. And yet when they build something together outside of kind of what I would call normal expectations. So um, when we construct something together, we actually can let down some of those guards and some of those pieces that don't allow us to connect to other people. The things that, um, if you think about your filters on your phone, right? All the filters that we can put put in front of people. Um, play actually makes a very authentic space for us to be ourselves. And so the, the reconnection allows us to take down those filters. Um, and sometimes it takes some time. Um, kids are certainly better at it. Adults are, um, adults take some reconstructing. <laughs> um, but that, that ability to connect with another human being on a layer and a level that uh, is both vulnerable and engaging and creates belonging cues and not uh, that us and them that we were talking about in the beginning, uh, play actually allows that. And, it, and I, you know, people would say, well, if you let it. And I would say, if you give play enough time, you will connect and reconnect to your own gifts and then those of others as well. Yes. And I think this is the thing, isn't it? It's it's also that vulnerability, but also that, that then the shaming, isn't it? Because it's... Oh, absolutely. They go, 
hand in hand together like when you were talking about the bridge the like you were saying shaming the other for not understanding you or not you know walking in your shoes because you feel that they should be walking in your shoes and understanding you right yeah absolutely mm. yeah my goodness i could talk to you for hours and hours <laughs> this is the play this is play yeah yeah, right? yeah, absolutely. Yes. Um, so when I when I wrap up with my guests, I always ask them, you know, is there one, two, you know, it could be three, four, whatever things you want to take from this conversation. For you, what would it be? Well, oh my goodness. To to wrap it up, I I really um I'm going to come back to that, that circle that we were talking about. Um, I really believe that uh, play and inclusion and ability and connection and belonging, those are, those are circular. Um, that when we, when we allow ourselves to be in play and from zero to 102, um, when we allow ourselves to be in play, we, we will create that magic and we will, we can, we can see things that right now might seem impossible, um, become possible. And so whether it's in our education system or it's in our business system, or it's in our early learning and childhood, um, or it's, it's in caring for um, our older adults, I, I really do see that circle, that wonderful circle that allows us um, this space to think about diversity differently, to think about belonging and connection differently. And um, yeah, if today during this conversation, something made you mindful of yourself or made you mindful of, uh, you know, someone else in your life, then that, that, is the best takeaway um, for me. And if, yeah, if you leave today and you find five minutes in your day where you're like, oh my goodness, that was my timeless moment. And I, I found it and I'd like more of those. Then, uh, then we had a great podcast day together. Amazing. Thank you so much, Brandy. Wow. Yeah, of course. What a fab conversation. Yeah. Well, thank you for having me so much. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you enjoy our podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or follow us on Spotify. You can also reach me via Twitter at FlourishingHE on LinkedIn or you can join our private facebook group flourishing education all the links are easily available on anchor.fm thank you so much and i hope you are flourishing bye for now <laughs>